Hi there, it's Carlos, and welcome to another episode of the Happy Startup School Community Podcast. For those of you who've just discovered this podcast, the Happy Startup School is on a mission to grow and support a community of startups, grow-ups, and leaders who want to learn the leadership and business skills that will help them make money, do good, and be happy. On this episode, I have a touching and illuminating conversation with Jerome Rebo, founder of Cogload. Cogload is a startup with a mission to help people make better decisions by making sense of behavioral research. Lawrence and I have known Jerome and his brother Anthony for many years now. They actually ran a workshop at our Happy Startup Summer Camp nearly five years ago, which is now coming up again this September, and there's still a few tickets left. At that time, we were still all running digital agencies, and to be honest, Lawrence and I looked up to the Rebo brothers and what they had achieved with their agency. During this episode, we talk about Jerome's journey to launching and growing Cogload, and what it meant to his relationship with his old agency, his brother, and his now co-founder and longtime friend, Roxy. So if you've ever shut down or left a company that you've helped create, or you're co-founding a business with a close friend or family, I think that you'll definitely get something out of this episode. So enjoy. So for him, it's it's going to be an ex. It's going to be an experience of uh, being around kids who who might be a bit more aggressive than he's yeah. used to. Okay, that's good. Which is like, on one hand, as a parent, um, I, I'm oh, as a growth mindset parent, I'm I'm I like the idea of him experiencing situations that will challenge him uh and yeah and and hopefully he'll come out for the better but then at the same time you don't want your young little one to be upset no i think there's there's definitely it sounds like i i remember i had a friend called eddie he was nicest boy nicest boy but he was uh, brought up in in an environment that was very secure, very comfortable, very protected from the realities, the harsh realities of of, of, of um, adolescent life, and I think it actually worked against him because it, it meant that he didn't develop the life skills required to deal with conflict and deal with you know difference difference of character and um, to deal with yeah, ultimately uh, he didn't he wasn't very streetwise. So I think the the mm. um, and it showed because he got into a lot of problems with bullying, but also he got like you know robbed at knife point a lot of the times, <laughs> men, right. living in Nottingham and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, I think that if he had developed a little bit more streetwise skills as a kid and hadn't been so protected by his parents, he might be a little bit better off now. Uh, I think the, the thing that sprang up for me when you're saying was the idea of dealing with mm. difference, uh, and whether that's conflict or just situations that you're not used to, and what that creates in you as a reaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we have to, we have to, in order to function in a society, we have to appreciate that there are people out there who are different to us, and that's important. It's not just. Um, good to realize that it's important for society to function and um yeah the sooner we realize that there are people who are who have different characteristics to us and we can work alongside them uh, the better and um in a really clumsy mm. segue to hopefully what we're talking about there's different people and how you then work with them and whether that's in a uh, employee-employer relationship, or even a co-founder huh. relationship, <laughs> and then there's uh, different situations when you make change in uh, in in your life that that yeah. is new uh, and uncharted. Yeah. And and uh, those all need to be navigated. And um, it's 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 like going back to the Dweck model of the growth mindset. It's it's good. It's good to embrace these 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 discomforts. I'm reading a book at the moment called The 15 Commitments of a Conscious oh, wow. Leader. I'm going to write that down right now. 
Uh, and it's it's fascinating to me now because of um, I think where where we got to with the Happy Startup School and um, my understanding of what these terms mean. I think if I'd read this book five years ago, I would have thought uh, WTF was yeah. all this about. But the thing, the last chapter that I've read, which is quite, relates to, I think, what you're talking about, is, oh, this thing about, um, I think, allies. Uh, and it's this idea, is the world working for me or against mm. me? Are these people who are different or these challenges that are getting in my way, are they there to get are they out to get me or are they out there for me to learn something new about myself uh, yeah and, and, and it's not to say that that, that either is uh, can only be the outcome like there can be more, more than one outcome i think both things can be true at the same time and mm. I think, you, know, you can learn mm. from conflict like if someone can be out there to get you potentially and you can learn from it brilliant yeah mm. I so there's this idea of uh, i think uh, it's Einstein quote where imagine if the world was truly benevolent and everything that is around us and everything that happens to us is for our benefit. Yeah. And what that does to a mindset. For our benefit. But I think some of the biggest challenges we face are in a way the greatest acts of kindness to personal development. You know, like if, um, if I lose my job, it can actually be a mixed a blessing in disguise. It could be it could lead me to find the thing mm. that I actually always wanted to do. So I guess, um, yeah, I think there is definitely there's definitely a lot of truth in the idea that difficulty and pain and discomfort are could be acts of kindness in disguise if indeed we learn from them. Hmm. And it sounds so. The thing that um, uh, the way I look at that now, it's it's not about the situation; it's how we yeah. respond to it, and what what meaning and interpretation we allow to give it. Allow ourselves yeah. to give it. That that makes me think about the the concept of Stoic philosophy, and um, you know, you can't control what someone says or does to you, but you can definitely control how you respond. And um, I think that, that when we start to acknowledge that there will be things that 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 we can't um prevent or uh situations we we can't necessarily control it if it, it's always liberating to know that you know well actually it's not about the fact that maybe this person doesn't want to be in a relationship with you anymore or this company doesn't want to hire you anymore it's much more about um these things will happen it's much more about okay given that situation what can you what can you do or how do you respond to that challenge? And I think that it, it's it's mm. liberating and it's 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 incredibly empowering. That, and that's the word I think for me is uh, that sprang to mind is mm. empowering. Um, I think of my son. Uh, sometimes I see him on a football match and in a football match, and he does something that isn't great, and then the kids around him start having mm. a go at him, or you know they say, "Oh no," you know. And I see him shut down and I see him start to, you know, visibly criticize himself and then he just checks out and he just just loses mm. interest. Uh, and and it's and how to then communicate that actually it you're not at fault. You're not, you know, yes, you might not be in the greatest of passes, but to choose to then just give up. That's yep. a choice. Yep. Yep. It's true. It's true. You have a, you have a number of different things you can do in response to that criticism. And yeah, um, some may seem easier, but they don't necessarily allow for the greatest, maybe medium term benefit or even long term benefit. Um, it's easier to just stop doing the thing that is discomforting, but, but it's like I was doing a drawing the other day and, um, and I was like, this is not very good. And, I felt uncomfortable with it, but I persisted and it ended up not being terrible. But if I just gave up and gave in to my short-term instinctive desire for comfort and and stopped doing this drawing, then I would never um, 
realize that actually it's part of the process of learning. Is there a bias there? Um, yeah, I think there is. Yeah, there is. <laughs> um, it's called a mirror exposure effect. You know, any sort of external stimulus or any stimulus that is perceived as negative, um, if, we ex- if we're exposed to it enough times, then eventually we'll, we'll, we'll habituate it. It will, it will become um, less painful. So, so essentially the, the, we will experience this discomfort, but with no terrible end consequences and we'll begin to sort of um, adapt to it positively and eventually we become comfortable with the discomfort and it ceases to be a problem. Another good example would be if you're interested in something like intermittent fasting, when you, um, throughout your day, you have these little spikes, uh, three key points in the day. It's a spike of um, a hun- the hunger hormone called ghrelin. And essentially, it's it makes you hungry. And it's a, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, but it only lasts for like 15, 20 minutes or so. And what you learn by going through a process of fasting every day, you learn to uh, habituate or become adapted to the discomfort of um, these ghrelin spikes and eventually go, yeah, it's fine. It's going to come, it's going to go, and it's going to be okay. And actually, um, and the benefits of, of, of being able to ride those waves are incredible for your, your mind and your body. The, the thing that stuck out for me when you were just saying is like, yeah, it's going to come, but it's going to yeah. go. Yeah. And be able to have that mindset around whether it's the what is it called the gr- ghrelin. Yeah, it's it's the hunger hormone. It's the it's the thing that makes us. And actually, interestingly, those spike those three spikes are around breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it just so happens that they're they're culturally ingrained. <laughs> they're not they're not to do with um, our biological um, requirements. You know, it's it's very much driven by uh, what we're used to culturally. So. Yeah, we have this. They 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 peak just before the moment where you're supposed to normally conventionally have those meals, and um, yeah, and they're quite consistent. And they don't like go off the radar. They 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 they, they peak and they fall again. And they peak and they fall again. So um, having that awareness, being comfortable with discomfort, and like uh, using using that opportunity to learn about yourself and your body and your mind, it's great, and you feel. They're much more empowered, I guess, going back to our earlier point, as a result. That's awesome. I, I love that. I love that idea. And so I, um, I, I have this habit, as uh, I keep on repeating myself on this podcast, of recording before actually yes, starting. Because <laughs> um, I, like sl- I like to slip into these conversations. I, I think there's always, it always provides, I find it always provides a bit of context to the, to the discussion that we intend to have but sometimes we also drift into something maybe even more mm. interesting but to to give uh some context to someone who's uh well the, the, so the image i always have with these conversations is like you and me are sat opposite each other at a dining table i always picture summer camp so remember in that barn oh, yep um having a meal and we're just having a discussion and then someone just walks across and just sits next to us and decides to just listen that's in. Nice. And so that's that's the kind of the feeling that I like to hold on to when I'm having these conversations. But then, of course, I'd like to introduce, you know, you've just sat down next to us and I'm talking to Jerome. Do you know who Jerome is? So, um, hey, Jerome, why don't you introduce yourself to this person who's just sat next to us? Well, um, hi, person. Uh, nice, nice, <laughs> nice, nice to... Um... Uh, nice to share this environment with you. It's a lovely, it's a lovely day. It's a lovely summer's day, and um, I really appreciate uh, being here. And Carlos has invited us back, and it's just—it's been a really great time. So, my background: well, I'm a co-founder of a small company uh, based here in Brighton called Cogload, and Cogload is a—it it, it aims to make sense of behavioural research. So we essentially, we rifle through all the, the research around how people make decisions um, in terms of things like forming habits, in terms of how they perceive um, um, prices, 
of, of, of products or how, why, what, what makes someone um, stop doing something or start doing something? What, you know, what are the motivations that drive people's decision making? So we look at all the research and we make sense of it and tell people how to use it to make better product decisions. So that's what we do as, as, as a company. And so that takes the form of we have our own little um, academy that we run every month and we do training for different companies. And we also have a product. And I was very keen to, um, you know, my, my, in, in my previous um, guys, I, we were creating digital products. And I really wanted to reconnect with um, the some sort of kind of very deep, deep set feedback loop to my to my work and to see something manifest and hold it in my hand. So we have a physical product called Nuggets, which are essentially bite-sized pieces of behavioral research that are very practical and are used in workshops. So we create these nuggets and they're growing and we've got a big library and people subscribe and they get new nuggets each month in little white, white foil packs that they peel open and they're like, oh, we're going to get this this month. And they build up their library over time and they use them in different ways to solve different problems. Do you want to describe what, what a nugget looks so like? So it's, um, it's, how would I say, what they fit in the palm of your hand. It is roughly, mm, it's just almost the height of a, the height of an iPhone 5 <laughs> and 50% wider than the width of an iPhone 5. Just using my, see my iPhone here. Um, and they are a thick, soft-touch laminate card, and they come in six different colors, and the colors correspond to different categories of research. Uh, and a nugget is essentially a, a research paper that's been distilled down into the core principle, the behavioral principle, um, explaining what it is, um, an illustration showing it in practice, uh, and on the on the front, it's the basic um, uh, information about the principle on the back we go into more detail on the study from the paper where we look at the actual data we look at the um, the results and so on and we show that and a, a, a simplified distilled um, assessment of the results and more, most importantly there's a whole section of the, of the back of the nugget dedicated to the practical use of this research in a product, in a real applied product setting. So we're looking at um, examples that exist in the wild that use this behavioral research or ideas that companies could use to put it into practice or other related research as well, because all this research does not exist in a vacuum that are all connected. These different principles about how we make decisions are, are connected to one another. So we really try to use the, um, the nugget to give you a sense of, of how what to use this research for and how it connects other related research and so um for a for a team or people working together on on creating something new whether it's a product or a service um and you you ran a workshop for us at the happy startup school which was lovely it's a great way of pulling together all these quite um, impenetrable some of them bits of research into a way that you can a understand them but b see how they can influence the design decisions that you make exactly that fair, fair way of putting it i think that ultimately as designers as people involved in creating products and services we are thinking about making tools that uh, are for people ultimately and if we understand how people think and how they feel if we understand the, 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 the what's going on beneath the surface we can better design products that are more empathic or more suited to people's normal decision making processes um, so and there are a whole bunch of different uh, like you said there's 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 a, it can be a bit impenetrable there is a we've seen a incredible uh, exponential growth of behavioral research now and um there's so much out there and it's so overwhelming if you go to google scholar and you type in i don't know type in risk because we are we are naturally averse to risk we don't like the unknown if you type in risk on google scholar you will find hundreds and thousands of pieces of research and so trying to find the right piece of research that gives you the um the concept and the the, the information required to make it a better decision is very hard so i guess what we do is spend most of our time in that space 
uh, looking at the new research that's coming out, um, looking at how this could be helpful for companies, how this could help people understand themselves as well as um, the people they're designing for, and ultimately knowing how this research could be applied uh, into a real world context because it's most of the time it's 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 left in a theoretical um, abstract context but that, because that's what its um, end value is it's 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 kept in an academic bubble and I think that the, the the maybe the main value that we provide is that we take that research and we bring it to a new new audience that maybe you're looking to use it in a in a more um, practical way. And the kind of the, the simple example that springs to mind that I hope may be relevant to many of the the entrepreneurs and wannapreneurs who listen to this podcast is around designing a website. And and from my experience, um, a lot of the time we you know we, we commission a designer to do something and we either just trust them to make something that looks pretty. Mm. Um or if it doesn't meet our requirements for whatever reason, whether it's the wrong color, according to us, it becomes a bit of an opinion fest as to what's the right way of doing things. And what I feel, or the way I understand how these cards could help in that context is just to come to a common understanding as how do we want to make a decision on the things that we're trying to put on this page or the flow that we want to create or the decisions we want our users to make that is grounded on something beyond just an opinion or adversarial kind of opinion. Yeah. And there are definitely, there's definitely enough research. The research is strong enough um, to give us that solid starting point that takes away the subjectivity of certain design decisions. We know categorically that certain things work better um, than others, and there is research there to support it. It means that the, the designer or the consultant's job is made easier because you're not just trying to persuade people based on your opinion and your, you know, you know, your expertise, but also of the expertise and the data of other researchers who have proven that this is the case under scientific uh, conditions. And so what, what is it that excited you about learning more about this stuff? What's the, what was the driving force for you? The driving force. Well, so I did, I did um, economics at university, and um, we didn't do any of this stuff at uni. And it was very. I found. Oh God, I must say, I found economics a little bit dry, especially early on, um, and a little bit too abstract. And I think that when behavioral economics really took off, um, we had a few Nobel Prize winning. Um, researchers come out recently but there was the 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 movement around nudge and thinking fast and slow and these 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 popularized books became um took took behavioral economics to a a new audience i guess and from where it started was we were now i ran a i ran a software um company for about 10 years i was the creative director of of that um agency we would make apps for you know people like Google, people like Channel Four, Tesco, etc. Large companies, and I think that there was a really interesting point where we've been we had a very solid um, UX design process, but and a lot of the, what was interesting is there were a lot of design decisions that we were making based on gut instinct, and there was this growth of awareness around behavioral economics that essentially underpinned a lot of these gut instincts that we had as designers. And essentially, tapping into that more deeply, there was a whole bunch of, of explanations for why we are the way that we are that would support our design decisions that would underpin them. And by using or making reference to these this, these um, behavioral principles in our work, just added a, a, another um, a sense of weight to to what we were doing as designers and it added a sort of scientific rigor, I suppose. And it added um, a very human centric aspect. It was a very, if you think about empathic design, it was just really thinking about people in a much more um, um, scientific way, I guess. And we started documenting as a company, as an agency, we started documenting the, all these different principles on a website that we knocked together in a, in a few days 
And it really grew from there. It's just a fascination with finding all these different principles and this new research that was coming out um, over the over the next few years. And it just um, kind of blew up. And I think it, it, it went from there, really. And it sounded like it, you were particularly taken by it. Um, and it was a passion that grew while the passion for the agency fell away. I think that it became a, re- a really interesting, because the way that Cogload started was essentially as a marketing tool for the agency. The agency, uh, we were looking as a, as a, as a, a company that built apps for other people we were always thinking well how can we make our apps better and so on but what what is it that we do that's different from other agencies and at the time no no one was really thinking about the behavioral the concept of behavioral design and i think um for me i maybe had a bit of a bit of a uh, opportunity to to think more deeply about taking this research out of academia and putting it into practice in our agency but i think that the project of doing that in and of itself became um, a, a focus for me that was separate from the agency. It became its own thing. It, it, it became a, a fascination and a curiosity that was almost separate from the agency. It became its its own um, entity. And I think that it evolved to be, as an agency, you never really have um, ownership of what you're creating. And I, I always use the analogy, it's quite a crude analogy, but I think you're you're essentially hired to um to make things for other people and you're maybe it could take three months or something to to essentially um grow from from nothing this this small um seed that becomes bigger and that you put all of your time and energy into um uh, fostering and nurturing and and so many thoughts and ideas and emotions that are wrapped into this thing. And after three months, it's handed over to the to the client, and they take it. And 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 either, well, in most cases, you never see it again. Or when you see it next, it's become this incredibly, um, I don't know, how can I say, in a, in a diplomatic way, um, <laughs> Frankenstein <laughs> cre- creation for for one. Um, purpose for another or another and you're like okay that's interesting um it's interesting what you've done with the project since don't necessarily think that we would have done it like that but that's cool you do you and um but you you go through this process like multiple times and you realize i'm just a i'm just a digital surrogate mother i'm just constantly pumping out these children that come back to me like a little bit damaged and i don't have (laughs) Ultimately, I don't have full autonomy on the process. And I think that, that what I realized running an agency, um, even as an owner, you the autonomy and the responsibility is curtailed. And I think that um, I wanted I wanted to be responsible for the for the potential risk. And you know, it, in this case it happened to be Coglo, but it could be anything, I suppose. I just wanted to feel the the, the discomfort of creating a product that um, we were responsible for, that, that the buck stopped with us, that, you know, that we would need to um, take the full, to take the full um, hit on and, um, and, and, and deal with the consequences ourselves. And I think that you don't necessarily have that full, nice uh, feedback loop as an agency that's constantly giving your work away. Uh, when you were talking about, even at the beginning, when you're talking about you know creating something and over three months handing it over, in my head I was thinking giving up your child for adoption. exactly, and then and then twelve you know twenty years later, it's them turning up on your doorstep and you're thinking who are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what did you become? Yeah. And look, it's not to say necessarily that all projects uh, ended that way or. Uh, you know, in the hands of some, the, the project blossomed, and uh, like incredible things would happen. Like, like the, the product would would evolve into something far bigger, or it would get um, a lot of attention, lots of press, lots of positive praise, awards, etc. Um, but it, I guess I saw, and maybe maybe it was the fact that you just weren't close enough to the thing. 
you know and i think mm. as a creator as someone who you know you're, it's in your title you're a creative director as someone who's who's responsible for ideas i think being detached from your creations is something that you can probably only do for so long. So an agency can only really satisfy your your needs to a certain level before you start to get more hungry for being closer to the to the action. I suppose. I think that 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 thing about being closer, bringing you back to that analogy, is that this person comes to your door is like, who are you? What relationship do we have anymore? How close are we? Even though the you came from me in a sense. We're then now completely different, separate people. Yeah. Um, and so that need, it sounds like, to grow with that that idea yeah. and to be with that idea and to see it. I would say, I would offer this. Part of it is 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 kind of you, you say talking about taking about taking the responsibility. Um, also, I would say. I hear a little bit there about um, stewarding that product in the way that you see it needs to go. But I would say also being molded by it as mm-hmm. well. So you're growing as it grows, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that we need to be aware of the fact that, um, you know, what we do um, can only take us so far. Like the opportunity that we, like, for instance, if we are in a current uh, job, that, that, that job has certain responsibilities, it has certain um, benefits, but there is a point at which the, the, the value um, will, will taper off. And I think that we, like going back to Carol Dweck's model of the growth mindset, you need to be uncomfortable. And I don't think, I think that if I'm honest with myself, I was too comfortable. And I think that um, I, didn't, I, didn't have, I didn't have anything to sink my teeth into that made me slightly dis- uncomfortable and uh, a little bit, you know, unsure about whether I was doing the right thing or not. And I think that um, having having the full autonomy to make those decisions and make those um, make those mistakes was important for personal growth. And yeah, you, I, I definitely think that I've grown a lot since um, moving on from from the agency. And um, and I think it's it's been great. It's been really good. Um. So on our last altitude retreat we had someone join us who recently closed down their agency and they found it quite a challenge emotionally as well as practically um because he'd invested so much time in it and i i can imagine there are people who listen to our podcast who are either running agencies and they're at a point of questioning what to do next or they're just starting for the first time they're growing but who would be curious as to what that transition was like for you mm. going from something you built and there's a particular context there that you know, it's up to you to share or not in terms of how, who your co-founder was, yeah. but also okay. personally how that worked in terms of, yeah, separating something from where you've grown. It was a very curious, like I'd spent 10 years um, growing um, a small agency with my brother and I think that we worked very closely together over that period and I think that the the agency's name is, is our surname and I think you're, it brings you even closer to the, the concept of identity and your, your creation if, you've got, if, you're, if you see your name on the door and you walk in every day it's kind of it's even harder to walk away from it but I think that the process by which I, I think I, when I think about the process, I think the process that I took was not necessarily the smoothest. I think it was, um, it was probably, um, I, I think there could have, there could have been a better transition if I'm honest, um, you know, in terms of actually road mapping out, they could have moved away from the agency towards a, a product business. Um, I think that to some extent, maybe hands were tied and uh, there were certain situa- certain uh, events within the agency that, that meant that, that maybe things needed to happen sooner rather than later. I'm not sure. Either way, 
it was a difficult process and I think that um, it took a long time for I think we were at different places like I was desperately itching to work on this thing and I think for Anthony my brother I think it took him a lot longer to um, maybe uh, accept that the, the half of the company, his brother, would would not want to be a part of it anymore. That he maybe fell out of life, love with it, um, and that's hard. That's a hard thing to accept. It's like a divorce, I suppose. And so you have to really. Um, that's a real. It's a it's a big challenge when you um, when you are also brothers as well as as well as co-founders. You're, you know, you're not. That it takes a strong mind to to distinguish walking away from a company versus walking away from your own family. And I think that that's something that I've never had to experience before. And it's definitely, it definitely requires a lot of strength and a lot of reflection on both sides. Uh, and it took, a, it took a good time, I think, afterwards for us to kind of come back together as just brothers who were happy for each other and, you know, comfortable with, you know, the, the situation. And, um, you know, there is probably a strong sensitivity around just stepping lightly around work-related conversations for the next maybe 18 um, to 24 months after I left. So, um, uh, but you navigate that slowly and you come together again. And that other person, both people need to be in a place where they can reflect and look back on and what happened and uh, be okay with it and take learnings from it and, and see that it's okay. Um, in the meantime, when the dust is is still in the air and you can't see anything, um, I think it's very difficult to both have clarity and be able to talk honestly about about the past. Mm. Thank you for that. There's um, why I heard there there was a very strong need for you to make a change, and um, and while you say that. It could have been done more smoothly. It feels like at the time there, it, there was quite a visceral need. Yeah. And I heard you say actually, um, bringing back to the idea of you know you you have a child and you give it up for adoption, or you have a child and you grow it for ten years, and this idea of life, bringing life to something. You, you said, I fell out of love, but I thought you were just about to say, I fell out of life. I did actually mistakenly say that. But I definitely fell out of love with it. And it's okay to say, and I think actually, I guess we'll talk about this later um, in terms of, you know, working with your with close friends and family. And some of the things that perhaps are important to recognise and to, or to, to articulate. Um, maybe we'll talk about that later, but I think being honest, being absolutely honest about your feelings. Um, either there are times when I really didn't feel like I could be fully honest with my my uh, co-founder because you know uh, my my partner was also working at the at the company, um, so it was his. And this this very it was a very strong sense of this is a family business and we have to be like we have to make it work. If we don't make it work, if we're not all happy, then something terrible, cataclysmic, could occur. When all your conversations are based around um, the, the company and the growth of the company and it being the focal point for everyone's life, I think it's very difficult, actually, to be honest and say, well, actually, I'm not happy and I don't want to do this anymore. It will send shockwaves through the other you know, key people in, in the business and um, and. I don't think necessarily we're well equipped to know how to handle that. And I think it can maybe make people worry about their own future and maybe surface those questions that are uncomfortable uh, for other people. Um, it, will, it will trigger fear. It will trigger uncertainty. It will trigger, like, what if they leave? What happens to the company? What will, What about me? Like, uh, am I happy? And these, these are difficult conversations or realizations to have but um and i felt like i couldn't have them for a long time so um you just suppress you suppress how you truly feel but it does eventually come out and i think that you know it starts with maybe like a reduction of motivation perhaps it it, it then manifests into like questioning like well like 
you know, what's the point uh, of this? Is there, is there no higher purpose to what we're doing? Um, then you start to kind of try and find out, find other small um, projects that are not related to work to maybe fulfill those unmet needs. Like I started doing ridiculously long ultra marathons in the Alps, as you do. <laughs> and, you know, you're looking for purpose and you're looking for focus. And I guess if you don't find it at work, you'll find it outside of work. And, um, yeah, it, it definitely starts to come out in, in curious ways that, but you can't ultimately avoid the, the, the conversation forever. And I think that the concept of honesty is, is both, if you're doing this with someone else, both people need to be absolutely honest. I can really like really painfully honest with yourself first and then with each other and to be, to be to be comfortable with hearing things that you really, really um, might not want to hear and to be okay with it and, and use that as a basis for maybe making decisions to, to, to keep doing things or to change stuff or to, to move on in your own direct, in your own personal direction. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I think that for anyone who's, who's navigating that to be able to hear that need for honesty and the need I think ultimately what you're saying is the need to be honest with yourself. Yep. Yeah. It's not, it's not a nice thing to have to do to, we had a, um, uh, we had a, a good chat, Roxy, Roxy and I, my co-founder of, of, of Cogload the other day where we, we, we had an opportunity, a window of time where we were essentially finished a deadline and uh, we had some space to think and reflect. And Roxy put together this incredible list of questions uh, about um, you know honest, very honest, very direct questions about how we were feeling and what was working, what was not working, and I think that it's it's too easy to just keep doing. It's convenient going back to your um, the football analogy and your son to walk away from the difficult um, to hearing difficult things and to just keep doing what you're doing. It's actually much harder to to come up and reflect and think this isn't working i'm not happy and to be comfortable with that um to hear the, to hear someone else say the same thing is is doubly hard but if you don't do that um nothing will change and you won't be able to make decisions that will make your life better and bring you back to the place of being happy and so there's you know on one hand having um creating something, a company, a product with someone close to you. Um, it sounds like it can add some extra weight if you're not careful about how you manage the perception of expectations around how the company should evolve, but also it could create benefits. Yep. And so you've gone from running a company with your brother to running a new company with a friend. Mm. A long-term friend, yeah. So, so I think that I've got pretty got a good. I mean, clearly, something, something about these sorts of uh, businesses is is um, attractive to me. Um, I think that so some of the challenges. Just I'll firstly like, explain some of the challenges, and then I'll perhaps explain some of the benefits. Um, so, when running a, a small company, it's incredibly, especially this new one. It's actually much more high risk. We're we're a startup. We're not an agency. We are not paying. We're not able to, you know, fulfill short-term. Uh, we're not able to create a short-term feedback loop of like selling our time. We're creating products. We're creating stuff that takes time to to um, to see the see the the benefits of. So it's incredibly high risk and it's uncertain. And your friendship will be put under strain. Uh, it, it will. It's categorically um, unavoidable. Um, so you have to protect as much as you can your friendship. Um, there are things where, you know, if you are very good friends, best of friends potentially, there is a real challenge around bringing too much of your personal life to work because you essentially you'll see that person every day and you'll want to talk about things that are outside of work. You need to manage that, that, that the distinction between different facets of your relationship carefully you still need to have time to be friends separately from work you need to separate the friend from the colleague basically i think um uh, yes you've got to be honest about why why you're doing this and um 
you know, what, what are your aims? What are their aims? Are they the same? Are they aligned? Um, they may, they may differ. Um, they may change as well as time goes on. You know, the startup is incredibly unpredictable and it take, uh, uh, can take a very different course, like a month, uh, a year, five years down the line. Um, I think that another thing I've realized from running a, a, a startup and a previously an agency with close family or friends, uh, the expectations um, and the pressures are much higher than with a non-friend co-founder. So um, there is a brutal reality that, in, uh, especially with a startup, in the short term, you will lose some aspect of your friendship by tying it to your financial survival. Um, your friend may be empathic as to your financial situation, uh, but not in the same way that they would if they weren't tied to you financially for their own financial survival. So I think that there are some challenges there to be navigated and ultimately going back to that point about being honest about all these things and being able to communicate with each other honestly and um, carefully is, is a really important thing. The benefits? Um, wow. There's the, the, this is the best one, I think. You are on a um, journey together. You have a, um, have a meaningful impact uh, in their ability to, to fulfill their own life ambitions. To, to, to think that you can actually, if you, if you care enough about that person, that your actions could directly impact their level of joy and fulfillment in life, that's an incredible incredible benefit uh, we get the ability to play to explore and be curious together each day and i think that's that's an incredible benefit of of being able to to, to create a project and it could be any project like roxy and i we have lots of different ideas it, you know we happen we, we were thinking about doing something in um, japanese curry or it could be uh, I have a, have a strong desire to have a company uh, involved in making salad dressings that just happens to be behavioral economics right now. Um, but th th there is um, there is something quite nice and simple that, that you get to see them every day. You get to you get a, a, a closeness that perhaps you wouldn't normally, even with your um, your partner. You get to get to work on solving problems together in a really really um, meaningful way as well. Um, you, the level of trust that you need, that you develop is unparalleled. You know, it's, a, it's a very high risk. It's very uncertain. You need to stick close together and the, the startup requires you to have that level of trust and that honesty. So it will bring you together if you can work through those challenges. Um, and ultimately there is a very strong feeling that in having that trust, no decision that you would make would do undue harm to the other person. And there's a very, it, 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 it's an incredibly um, positive feeling to know that you are building something together and that you are looking out for their best interests as well. And I think that it's something that running a small company or a startup can offer you that, that capacity to, 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 to feel that in, in your friendship. Wow, that's beautiful. That's, uh, I, I love the way you articulate your thoughts and ideas. It seems so clear uh, and at different levels, intellectually and emotionally. Um, and that, yeah, I think you the, what you touched on resonates very much for me. Uh, running the Happy Startup School with Lawrence. We've known each other since school, so it's... All of those things I agree with, uh, both the challenges and the benefits. And so with Cogload and um, your next steps, what do you, where do you see yourself going from now? Like, so this is a very product-based uh, business at the moment. You said it is a it's a is you're not selling the idea is not to sell your time but to sell this product. Um, yeah. What what's in the future at the moment for you? So, so our time is spent between finding this research, trying to trying, make making sense of it, reading it, translating it, and telling people how to use it. I think there is also we are, I guess 
I've moved from a place where I'm designing software to being an educator of behavioral economics, which is two, two very different things. And um, there is an implicit part of that, that that I really enjoy, that Roxy actually enjoy, enjoys even more, which is training, which is actually sitting down with people and, and, and develop, helping them develop a common language around understanding themselves and other people. And I think that there's nothing better than getting people in a room to, to, to do that. Um, in terms of the vision, so essentially, I guess, so we do those two things together, the product and the, and the, and the education. They go hand in hand. We use the we use our product in the training, and the training, um, yeah, and they, they they marry up quite nicely. The way that the future of the company is going to go will be that we are essentially building up this behavioral library, and and it's essentially it's a behavioral network of different related research that um, is solving different problems. When the library gets to a certain point, which it's starting to now, uh, where we've built up a, a library of maybe you know, between 70, 80, 90 different kind of research principles, behavioral principles, you start to see um, common traits and you start to see patterns and you start to see associations that operate at a slightly higher level. So I guess our core, um, our, our mission is to help people make better decisions by making sense of behavioral research. And I think that what we have to do is make sure that we keep pushing uh, in that area and so it would not be enough just to tell people more and more research we need to see the bigger picture so we will be developing a uh, another layer on top of this this system that we're creating well essentially we're looking at behavioral research through the lens of solving particular problems so how do you overcome people's aversion to risk or how do you offboard people you know after using a product successfully how do you say goodbye to people? Or how do you deal with um, people's? Um, it, well, how do you? Uh, what is the best way to introduce a new concept to someone, um, a new idea or a new product? Or this, this, how do you develop a community? All these, all these sorts of different concepts, the business challenges, and essentially, what what they will be will be amalgamations of different nuggets together in a form of like a recipe and uh, they will help ultimately solve business problems through behavioral research and they will become workshops and and you'll be able to um, there'll be a digital platform that will essentially support that as well but essentially the point is research alone is not enough and the, the work that we're doing right now is great but it's not enough we need to be putting we need to be seeing uh, relationships between different pieces of research and packaging them up in a way that allow people to solve their own um, business challenges. And that, that's something that we can only do once a network becomes big enough. And we're starting to be able to do that now. So, um, yeah, that's, that's essentially where the, the product vision is. In terms of the training vision, like it's a complementary, I would love, and we talked about this before, um, I really, really want to reimagine what it means to be to be educated and to to like people say oh, they come to our academy and, and they've, they've, they've done a master's in behavioral economics and they said they've learned more in a single day in our um, applied uh, training than they had in two years on, on their MSc. So, but I think that, that that's not good enough for us. We need to be thinking generally, how do you, what are the other things that we need to consider when uh, training people what is the experience in its entirety and what environment do you want to create and i have this wonderful vision of creating a um a new training center in a like a disused golf course that we would essentially turn into like um, a series of um like a, like a forest where you've got loads of wonderful walks and there's an incredibly well designed secluded training center with a hotel and people would stay for a few days and they would they would they would learn and they would like reflect and and it would have been an incredible environment in which to, to to be um and to be open to new ideas and to be playful and to be curious and to think about themselves as well as other people in terms of behavioral research that they've learned about just really like a, a incredibly strong design aesthetic very well very well put together program and um ultimately people coming away feeling incredibly elevated and curious about the world and people
Amen to that. Um, that's a beautiful vision. So if, if people, um, I'm sure lots of people listening to this are excited by that idea, if they wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where would you like to point? Them? Just go to cogload.com, C-O-G-L-O-D-E.com. Um, just, just I tell you what, read the, the blog. We have lots of research on there. If it, if it sparks your interest, um, reach out on, on, on the website, um, send us, send us a message via intercom and, um, yeah, just let us know your thoughts. I think that if you're curious about, um, people like we are, then, then you'll understand what we're trying to do. Um, I have a few last points around, um, friends and, uh, warning signs would that be helpful mm. oh please yeah no of course definitely so i think that in in my experience of running a two companies with friends and family i've definitely um noticed a few patterns uh and understanding what those i'm sure there are others but what those patterns are um as early as possible so one of the one of the things is um a warning sign would be when you start to see your 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 friend stroke family member as a um, primarily as a work colleague and i think you stop to see, stop seeing them as a friend uh, first and foremost i think it's incredibly important to realize it means that that's, there's some aspect of your relationship that's been lost and it's important to recognize that, that has been lost and that's okay um if you have any creeping resentment towards your co-founder which can which can definitely happen if things have not been said or if you're not being honest with yourself about your true feelings I think that creeping resentment can rise and you start to become um, maybe um, uh, less patient with them and uh, less forgiving of any mistakes that they're making or, you know, or just, yeah, the resentment can build definitely. If you notice any um, drops in your own motivation, any rising negativity or flatness, I think that's something to be aware of as well. Um, and I think you've got to be able to talk with them about, about where perhaps that stems from. Um, if you uh, are, if you're experiencing an aversion to expressing your honest uh, feelings, um, I think I've learned that that not being honest is not going to help you. People ultimately, if you tell them that something's not okay, they're going to want to help you sort it out. It's okay to say that you're not enjoying yourself. There is a reason. There is a. Re- it doesn't mean you're not enjoying their company or you're not enjoying. Um, the creation of your own company, it just means at this point in time, something isn't quite right, and it's okay to say that. Um, if there's any conflict around the ambiguity of your roles, responsibilities, or any bigger elephants in the room regarding your vision, you need to get those sorted. And lastly, as friends and as family, you need to have time away from the doing, the working um in the business you need to have meaningful time away to reflect with each other and talk about broader considerations and it does require you to be emotionally available but ultimately you come out the other end incredibly um, elevated both of you and um, much much better set for success in the future oh that's great oh i wasn't expecting that thanks a lot that's that's really useful stuff made me think as well no worries about um what we'll, we'll, we should be doing, um, Lawrence and I. So no, that's that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for a lovely, illuminating <laughs> and and touching conversation, Jerome. It's really nice to hear more of the story and and to, yeah, for you to share what that journey's been like. I think it's important to, if you have anything meaningful to share in life, you should. Um, we can all learn from each other and I'm sure that, you know, people will reach out with their own experiences and, um, hopefully, um, you'll get some interesting conversations developing off the back of this one. Perfect. Well, hope to see you soon and well, thank you very much. Great. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to this Happy Startup School Community Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, then check out our website, thehappystartupschool.com. If you believe that there's more to life and business than making money and waiting for retirement, and if you want to surround yourself with other like-minded change makers and entrepreneurs who want to make money, do good, and be happy, then please come join our community. 
We offer courses, conversations and content that will help you follow your own path to success. Whether you're just starting out, struggling to grow your business or in a position of leadership and trying to work out what's next. There's no reason to face these challenges alone when you can be supported by people like you who want you to succeed. And from Friday the 13th to Sunday the 15th of September, we're hosting our Happy Startup Summer Camp. While we know that strictly isn't summer, the event also isn't just for startups. At its core, Summer Camp is about learning, play and friendship. We want to promote personal growth in business. We advocate holding our work lightly so that we can be more creative. And we know that we can't create impact on our own. We need to work with others that give us energy and support. As well as inspirational talks, we've got activities and experiences such as Blingo Bingo, Botanical Brew Making, Yoga, Mindful Raving, Saunas, Hot Tubs, Lake Swimming, Japanese Sword Fighting, Qigong Breathing and Dancing. Lots of dancing. To find out more about Summer Camp, please go to happystartupsummer.camp. Business doesn't have to be boring and it definitely shouldn't be lonely. I hope you can find your tribe with us this September.